Deuteronomy chapter 7. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we thank you so much for this book. It is so rich. There is so much for us to learn. We pray, Father, that, well, we thank you, Lord. Your word says that the natural man doesn't understand the things of the spirit, but the spiritual man can judge all things. And we thank you for the spirit of God that can bring these words to life. Words that were written thousands of years ago, but they could have just been written in one sense, at least yesterday, Lord, they're, they are so rich. And though, Lord, we do know that they're, though they are from the old covenant, there is Jesus written across the, across these pages. And just there's this story of your faithfulness and, and, and your love as you instruct and warn your people and how, how, Lord, we need instruction and how, Lord, we need warning today and encouragement uh, in our spirit. And so I pray, Lord, uh, that you would do that as we are going through this book and these chapters today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Again, Moses, just uh, a few days before his death, he has the nation of Israel, after f having been delivered from the slavery of Egypt and having led them for 40 years through the wilderness, he has them right on the border on the east side of the Jordan overlooking what we know today as Israel and he is giving them instruction and how they are going to need it. Uh, in these chapters, one of the things that we are going to be really reflecting on is they, they're going to be going from living really leanly. Uh, they're, they're, they don't have a lot. They're living day to day, but they're going to go into great prosperity. And, oh, do you need to spiritually prepare someone for that so more on that later chapter 7 verse uh, chapter 7 verse 1 of deuteronomy says this when the lord your god brings you into the land of which you go to possess again i love the use of the lord uh, the word when There's no doubt in moses mind uh, that What's going to happen here? So important for a leader to have a godly confidence when, not if, when the Lord, your God, brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you. The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Seven nations greater and mightier than you. Notice there that he uh, is, Moses doesn't shrink back from uh, giving a similar report to what the 10 spies did 
about 39 years earlier when they went into the the promised land and came back they said wow there's nations there they but they're greater and mightier uh, than we are uh, and and so he is giving them the truth he's not withholding the truth from them uh, a big difference of course when you go and you possess this land and you cast out these people and so uh yeah it's it's a uh, also just a, a wonderful reminder to me i i don't think i, I think and I mentioned this a while back in, in I think, in in our study of numbers. I, I don't think that there are few sins that the body of Christ in the United States of America is more guilty of than a an apparent complete rejection of the Gideon principle that that the that the Lord you know he, he used with Gideon hundreds of thousands of soldiers, he used three hundred three hundred Israelites to beat them. Um, they originally had, what was it, 10 or 20,000, and uh, he cut them down to 300 saying no, because if you beat them with a, a, an army of 10, 20,000, you'll take the glory. I want the glory. The world, the, the world was created for God's glory, yet the United States of America, the, the, the body of Christ here, seems to have completely forgotten that, that they need to have that majority. They need to retain power and numbers but here this first verse makes it clear that god gets the work done uh, with um, always uh, using uh, less powerful in the natural less powerful less numerous um, armies and people less talented so that he would be glorified so when the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to the possession and have cast out these great and these nations, uh, seven nations greater and mightier than you, verse two, and when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, show nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor uh, take their daughter uh, for your son for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods so the anger of the lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly but you shall deal with them you shall break destroy their altars verse 5 and break down their sacred pillars and cut down the wooden images and burn their carved uh, images with fire and so, uh, again, these are a few of these verses that people use to attack Jehovah, the Judeo-Christian God. Why would a God of love utterly destroy um, a, a, a nation? Why would he do that? And that is, in fact, what he is asking them to do here. The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites... Well, um, let me remind you of, uh, when was it? I'm losing my numbers here, but uh, 1,500 years earlier, something like that, when God was, not, not 1,500 years earlier, whoa, strike that. Um, it would have been 600 years earlier. 600 years or earlier in Genesis chapter 15, when the Lord was speaking to Abram, this is at the very beginning of of. 
Abraham's uh, journey uh, that he uh, was uh, was making uh, to um, he, he's journeying. He's, he's in the promised land and he's gotten there. And God said, verse five of chapter 15, he brought him outside, says, look now towards the heaven and count the stars if you are able. And, and, and he said, so shall your descendants be. It says that Abraham believed in the Lord and accounted uh, it to him for righteousness. Uh, but then he said in verse 13, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, will serve them, uh, and they will afflict them 400 years. He's referring to the nation of Israel as slaves in Egypt. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge afterward. They shall come out with great possession. That's speaking of the deliverance. And then he says in verse 16, but in the fourth generation, they shall return here for the iniquities of the Amorites is not yet complete. And that's a reference to the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete, meaning there is a certain level of sin There is a certain level of sin that, uh, God, where the wickedness cries out so much that God must judge it. And at this time, this is 600 years earlier, he's telling um, Abram, no, I, I, I can't allow you to be here. I'm waiting on these people. This is a long-suffering love of God. And, and there was 600 years. And so rarely when anyone talks about this terrible God of the Old Testament, how could he ever utterly destroy a people, do they say, well, wait a second. He actually waited 600 years for them to uh, repent. Uh, and rarely do you ever hear the practices uh, that they uh, they practice, the Amorites, uh, before being utterly destroyed. Uh, they practiced uh, human sacrifice. They practiced bestiality. They just, uh, I, I, I wouldn't be able to, in, in a recording, really recount just the level of evil that they had uh that they have degraded to. And uh, you may have uh, heard this analogy before, but it's almost like at the point that a dog is has full-blown full rabies, uh, there's no cure for it. The only question is how many, how, how many uh, others the dog is going to infect with that rabies. And uh, in, in the history of, of mankind, there have been certain peoples where uh, only God knows, no one else knows, but no one else is going to repent. And God waited 600 years. It actually says in the tribulation there'll be a similar thing. Revelation 14, 18 uh, says this, another angel came out of the altar who had power over fire and cried, uh, with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. Meaning, uh, the, 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 at the time where not one more person uh, is going to be saved, is going to repent, that's the time of the rapture. And, 
and the tribulation beginning. And so, but, but the long-suffering love of God, it waited 600 years. It, uh, and, but at that time, uh, God is God. And, 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 and the Bible says that his judgments are altogether righteous. And he, he does tell the Israelites to conquer them and utterly destroy them. It says in verse 3, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter uh, for your son, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And uh, that is absolutely uh, is the case. Uh, they will certainly, uh, with, with, with so many unequally yoked marriage marriages where uh, a Christian marries an unbeliever, for example, uh, inevitably uh, their, their, the, the, the sons, the, the children, uh, many of them will gravitate towards the unbelieving parent who worships uh, a pagan idol. They may not be a little statute, but it may be uh, you know, practices with entertainment, which are the equivalent of of an idol or, um, or, or music or just, uh, the, the, uh, the vain pursuits of, of life. And so uh, a great, great, so many dangers, uh, marrying an unbeliever. And it says, uh, it says they will turn verse four, uh, your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. And so uh, God will have to judge them. And so uh, I, I have have this conversation, oh, I don't know, probably two or three times a year at least. Someone's dating an unbeliever. And I had one recently. And, uh, and I, I have to just present these verses uh, to them. Uh, now, actually, I, I, I had two conversations recently. One of them, um, I just happened to the day before in my uh, own personal Bible study, uh, not coincidence, it was a God incident, that I read the last chapter of Nehemiah, where uh, Nehemiah is pulling out the beards of Israelites who had uh, married foreign women, and so I read this to him, and uh, by the end of the conversation, yeah, you know, some, Pastor Steve, uh, uh, I agree. Uh, you're right. And so uh, these these warnings are here for our good and to turn us into the right direction and to save us all kinds of mi misery, uh, including the destruction of our kids. It says here that the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. That's r really referring to uh, sons or grandsons or these type of things who turn away from the Lord, where there's judgment in their life. Verse 5, again, it says, You shall uh, destroy their altars, break down their pillars, cut down their uh, wooden images. The promised land was to be cleansed of all those things. Verse 6 says, For you are a holy people, meaning a separate people, to the Lord your God. Um, in terms of their behavior, there was uh, nothing holy about it, or very little holy about it during the the 40 years, but holy in the sense that God had separated uh, them. 
The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples. There's that Gideon principle again. But because, verse 8, the Lord loves you. Because the Lord loves you. And so, why did the Lord love them and choose them above every other nation on the earth? Well, it says right here, it wasn't because um, um, really... Uh, that they were more powerful. It wasn't because they uh, were more in number. God, God doesn't, says you were the least of all people. God, God doesn't need human power to demonstrate his power. Human power usually uh, that will only confuses in the sight of the world sometimes uh, the power of man and the power of God. No, he chose the least of the people. Uh, and so oftentimes that's, how God is glorified the most. And so um, could it be uh, because of uh, he, that he chose them because, I don't know, they were, they were better uh, than other people? Well, no, that's not true at all. Did he, did he love them uh, because uh, they were more cuddly and he just, wow, he did there's something about him. He just wanted to hug more than uh, everyone else because of some uh, good thing about them, some merit, some uh, something about their behavior warranted it. Uh, no, not at all. He loved them because he chose to love them, period. The Bible says in 1 John 4, 8, God is love. Same verse in 1 John 4, 16. God is love. And why he loves us, why he loves the Israelites, why he chose one for uh, salvation and another not, I do not know. It does say in John 15, I believe it's John 15, 15. You didn't choose me, Jesus said, I chose you. Why? Because he, he loves us and he, he doesn't love, choose to love us and set us aside and make us a holy people because of some good thing that, that we have done or that there's because of some lovable part of us that he was particularly attracted to. He simply chose to love us in this way, uh, because of his divine purposes. And that's it. He loves us because he is, God is love. And so, uh, you know, this is, a, it's interesting because, you know, sometimes this type of uh, theology is, is taken too far. Um, I think of the, uh, the Calvinist tulip T-U-L-I-P, T for total depravity, U for unconditional election, L for limited atonement, I for irresistible grace, P for the perseverance of saints. Uh, you know, each person needs to work through each of those, each, you know, each of those principles. There's a lot of truth in them. 
I don't think uh, limited atonement is, is biblical at all. Uh, but um, oftentimes, uh, particularly those with a Calvinist bent, they will, in my opinion, take that T, the total depravity, and they'll take it uh, too far. And uh, what do I mean by that? Well, they will say things like, when God looks at man, he doesn't see anything whatsoever that's lovable about them. Uh, there's, And they'll make statements like, uh, you know, man who is unsaved, uh, or saved for that matter, has n nothing whatsoever that is lovable in him. Um, they would probably say once someone is in Christ, you know, God loves them as a result of uh, being in Christ and seeing his son. But I, I think there's a great danger there. Uh, I, I do feel like those kind of uh, statements are unbiblical. Uh, when you look, for example, in the Bible, uh, you will have the story of the Good Samaritan. And, and some of these poor people will try to convince you that maybe the Good Samaritan was saved. He wasn't saved. That was the whole point that Jesus was making, that even an unsaved person has more, uh, has more regard for the, uh, the, the outcast, the downtrodden, the, in that particular case, the, the beaten up than many of the many of God's people had uh, in the Bible. You will see uh, David uh, saying of Nahash the Ammonite. Let me just pull that one out for you. Nahash the uh, the Ammonite. It says that um, David says of him in First Chronicles nineteen two that uh, David said that Nahash had showed kindness to him. So uh, there, there can be something lovable in the lost. There absolutely can be. Uh, but whatever it is that may be lovable about them is not the reason that God chose to save them. The two things are mutually exclusive, meaning the lovable part of you uh, is not, there may be a lovable part of you if you're not saved, but it has nothing to do with God's salvation of you. I, I, you know, I, I remember just thinking about this whole subject the other day on the basketball court. I was up here in the inner city of Boston. I'm playing with a bunch of, uh, a bunch of, uh, of teenagers, and I, I, I had an idea where they were from. We have the projects around here, and and, uh, I, you know, I just, uh, I just love these guys, uh, even though, I mean, they were using foul language and uh, they, uh, from where they were com coming from, because we've dealt in these communities, there's a possibility that one of them maybe even has murdered someone. <laughs> and uh, I don't think any of them were Christians, but they, there was something about them that just made me that, that was lovable about them. They just had a zest for life that was lovable. And I'm thinking, um, you know, if it's true that God doesn't see anything lovable in any human being, does that make me better than God because I have an affection, a, a love for these kids? Uh, no, not at all. There, there is fallout from the Garden of Eve, Eve that's uh, 
most of it is bad, but some of it is is actually good. There'll be, for example, the Good Samaritan. There will be things in human beings that, from from some sometimes is uh, is lovable that makes us have an affection for them. That's why uh, David loved uh, Nahash the Ammonite, uh, and uh, there was also a relationship between D David and the king Hiram um, of, of Tyre. The point is. We should never, ever think that whatever is lovable about a, a human being has nothing to do with why God saves them. Because among many other reasons, what if the person ceases to be lovable in that way? Does God cease to love them? Of course not. It's, a, it's always a one-sided, unconditional covenant um, of love. Uh, it, would they lose their salvation if they cease to be lovable in that way? Of course, um, they will not. Uh, God has promised; He's the captain of uh, Jesus is the captain of our salvation. He's promised to take us uh, from this life right in, uh, as our ship captain into the next one. The point is that God is going to make. Uh, the point is, and God's going to make this point several times in the chapter seven and chapter eight, is that it has nothing to do with Israel, with with you, Israel, uh, of why I chose you. I chose you simply because I love you. He gives a second reason in verse eight, and because the Lord would keep the oath which He swore to your fathers, God. God is a man of his word, and he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, that uh, this land would be theirs, and they, their descendants would be his people. So he, cho um, he chose you because he loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers. The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage and from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore, verse 9, know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. And he repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with them who hates him, he will repay him to his face. Now, what on earth does that mean, to his face? Well, the Bible does say at some point, those who are judged, even eternally judged, will know the judgment is the Lord's. May not know it at the time. They may, they may just think that whatever, the stars are against them, whatever, when they're, you know, when bad things are happening to them or they're being judged. Uh, but they will know at the uh, white throne judgment, and when they pass from life to death, they will know uh, who is repaying them um, for uh, for their unbelief in, in the Lord and in their lifestyle. And so, uh, verse 11 says, Therefore you shall keep, this is Moses speaking of the nation of Israel, you shall keep the commandment, the statutes, the judgments, which I command uh, you today to observe them. Then it shall come to pass, because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord your God will keep w with you the covenant and the mercy which he swore to your fathers. 
and he will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your land, your grain and your new wine and your oil, the increase of your cattle and of the offspring of your flock and the land which he swore to your fathers to give you. So here we see the heart of the father there. God does want to bless you and he wants to bless you with good things. Uh, and uh, that doesn't mean everyone's going to be wealthy, but uh, the Bible does say that God will uh, withhold no good thing to those who uh, love him. Now that means that there, by the way, some things which we may think are good, God withholds from us because they would be bad for us. Even though we think they're good, they would be bad for us. I mean, you know, most 18-year-olds can't can't handle whatever, a $50,000 car. So, in fact, many people of whatever age can't. And so uh, God will withhold that. We may think that's a good thing. It's not a good thing if we can't handle it, though. But the heart of the Father wants to bless you. Every father wants to bless. They want to, they want to turn over the, you know, the keys to a new car to their child. Now, that's probably something that I will never do because I don't have that kind of money. But I, you know, the heart, God can know, and, and, and he wants to, to, to bless you. That's just the heart of the Father. He wants to, he wants to kill uh, the, 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 the goat as he did for the prodigal son and, and throw a big party for you. He wants to see you blessed. He loves to see the countenance of his children uh, brighten as they are are being blessed, but he knows how to do it in such a way that is for our good. Verse 14, you shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be a male or female barren among you or among your li uh, uh, livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and will afflict you with none of the terrible diseases of Egypt, which you have known, but will lay them on all who hate you. And so, Verses 14 and 15, you know, talking about uh, male or female uh, not being barren, not only among the livestock, but amongst the people themselves, and then also taking away all the sickness. Uh, there would be a supernatural element to that, um, obviously. But in addition to that, just from the book of Levit Leviticus and and, and otherwise, just the kosher laws, the handling of the blood, the handling of the dead bodies, which uh, would really cause them to be relative to every other nation on planet Earth, an amazingly healthy people. Now, you may, you, what I would do to go back in time during the period where the Israelites were really obeying and, 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 and just walk among them and get the stories of, uh, of this thing about the lack of barrenness. Um, but I, I do believe in seasons of Israel's history, this, this happened. It was promised that I believe it happened. You know, in the millennial kingdom, all of this will be, uh, that type of thing will be literally fulfilled. But uh, no doubt in certain times where the nation as a whole was uh, being obedient to God, these very things happened. Uh, to the nation of Israel, can imagine that not a single male or female barren among them. 
And and God God does these things even today. He he does these things uh, with his people. He um, he gives life to the barren. Some he chooses to to remain barren because he has another plan for him for adoption or whatever it may be. There's so many opportunities for adoption. I tell you, uh, we go to Haiti two or three times a year. There's orphans there and have such a heart for them. And there's many of those opportunities, but God moves in the supernatural uh, so much, even till today, making the, the barren woman, uh, making the barren woman actually become pregnant with, with child and taking away diseases, this type of thing. Verse 16, you shall destroy all the peoples whom your Lord your God delivers over to you. Your eye shall have no pity on them, nor shall you serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. You know, I've been praying recently the prayer in Philippians. It's a great prayer. Uh, and... Let me turn there right now. It's a good one for you to reflect on. Paul prays for the Philippians that in chapter 1, verse 9, that they would abound more and more in... Um, let me repeat that. He prays that their love would abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment. And so... That's a great prayer to pray for yourself, and that's a great prayer to pray for the leaders of your church, your friends, that their love would abound still more and more knowledge and all discernment. And where am I going with all this? Well, sometimes there's a, when we pray, uh, I mean, rather when, when, we're, when we're, we love in such a way that there's, to the world, it may seem like love, and even to us, it may seem like love, but it's not. For example, you know, from time to time um, at church over the years, uh, we have had folks in children's ministry who just didn't want to discipline the kids. Uh, we actually have a policy in our Sunday school, if we have a rarely used, but from time to time we have, where if a kid just over and over again, uh, does not behave, he will be taken out of Sunday school. And we've had people really struggle with that, thinking that it's unloving to do that. And I would suggest that uh, they are they are not loving with knowledge and discernment, as it says in Philippians chapter one verse nine, because uh, discipline, you know, is a part of love. And if you take discipline away, that's not love at all. So why am I, why in the world am I bringing up all this? Well, you know, when you read a, a verse like Deuteronomy seven sixteen, oh how intense this is! You shall destroy this, these people, all of them, and your eyes shall have no pity on them. I mean, that must have been a hard thing to do for an Israeli soldier going through the land. Now, of course, we're under a new covenant, and we don't conquer. We'll only, we, we conquer by love. <laughs> we don't, Jesus is really specific about, uh, you know, about that. Uh, we conquer by love. But at this time in the Old Covenant, where God is establishing a nation um, of Israel, a nation that would be used to uh, 
for the whole world to see and get to know God, a nation that would be used to bring uh, in the Messianic line. He wanted to preserve them. And he knew that this sin, the sin of the Amorites, uh, was so heavy, so intense, so rabid, that they all needed to go, all of them. And he tells them, your eyes shall have no pity on them. And, you know, you can imagine being one of these soldiers going through and, and thinking, well, I don't know if this is loving uh, to, to kill this man or, or, or whoever. Uh, and that is an example that would have been an example. And it actually that did wind up happening. The Israelites did not do what God uh, told them to do. And it says, it, it, it said that the people who remained among those people became a snare, meaning it took them down. It caused them and their families and their sons and their grandsons to go into the same um, evil practices. The Israelites eventually did practice uh, human sacrifice and sacrificing their babies to foreign gods. And so praying that we would our love would abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment. And, and so we need to pray that for us. Verse 17, it says, If you should say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I uh, dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember well that the Lord your, what, your, what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt. Pharaoh of Egypt, of course, was a mighty nation. Israel, uh, they were a, a nation. Um, calling them a weak nation would have been an understatement. They were a nation of slaves. And there's that reference, I think, in the book of Leviticus, that they basically, they were beaten up so badly, they were a nation of hunchbacks. They were physically crouching over um, and yet the Lord, through the ten plagues, destroyed the nation of Egypt. And he's saying to them here, look, don't do what you did 39 years ago at Kadesh Barnea and, and, the ten, and, and believe uh, the ten spies who came back that uh, there's no way you'll ever be able to defeat them. You will defeat them. Just, and it's it's not actually you, it's me. Uh, remember, again, verse 18, remember well that the Lord your God, what he did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. Uh, and so, uh, so important. I, I recently shared with the church body at Calvary Chapel in the city that uh, just a, a, a prayer... Um, I did a sermon on prayer and, and gave the testimony of what I do for my own prayer life. And w one of the things that I shared with them is that Monday through Friday, I, I, I answer this question. I, I answer, you know, the question, you know, in what areas of my life have, have I been worrying about or complaining about or, you know, plotting about, you know, busying myself in the flesh trying to, to deal with, uh, fearing about this type of thing and I and I write them down I write these things down that I've been worrying about or fearing about and then I read the verse of Jesus from Mark chapter 8 verses 18 and 21 
in which after Jesus had fed at one time 4,000 with just a few loaves of bread and a couple fish and 5,000, which is just a few loaves of bread and a couple fish. Even after that, in Mark chapter 8, the disciples were wondering where they were going to get bread. And, and he said to them, is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? How is it that you don't understand? Meaning, you've seen my faithfulness. You've heard my faithfulness. You know my faithfulness. And yet you're, you're, you're forgetting. And, and that is so important that we do that, that you do that in your, your time, uh, your, your devotion time, that you remember what the Lord God has done in your life. As Jesus says in Mark um, 18, don't you remember? Don't you remember what I did for you? And, uh, you know, it's a valuable thing because uh, we're, we're in these bodies of death. Paul calls our bodies the bodies of death. And one of the things this body of death does is it worries. And so important to remember the faithfulness of the Lord, the faithfulness of the Lord. And here... Uh, Moses is doing the same thing with the Israelites. Remember what God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt, verse 19. The great trials which your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand, the outstretched arm, by which the Lord your God brought you out, so shall the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. So uh, he, he's, he's acknowledging that they're going to have fear. And, but he's telling them, when you fear, remember what God has done. Same thing with you, anyone listening to this message. You're going to fear. But take a step back and remember God's faithfulness in your life. Verse 20 is an interesting uh, verse. It says, moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet among them. That is the their enemies in the, the promised land. The Lord your God will send the hornet among them until those who are left to hide themselves from you are destroyed. I personally don't think that's talking about a real hornet because we don't really see that story in the book of Joshua. Uh, if, if, you could, if you've seen it in the book of Joshua, write me an email and tell me about it. But I just think uh, what it's talking about is the amazing supernatural power that they're going to see the Lord God is going to go before them and it's just going to, there's, he's going to take out just one enemy after another. You know, God has resources that we don't know anything about. And uh, time and again, I've, I've, uh, I've seen that in my life, that there are, are, are resources that uh, he has that, that um, you know, we're looking at our situations. We can't figure out any way to get behind it to get around our situation or move through it, forgetting that God has resources that we know nothing about. He's got hornets <laughs> that we know nothing about. And so uh, it's not a bad verse to, to, to reflect on that, you know, he, if you have this obstacle in front of you, he's got a hornet. And um, even as you obey the Lord, you walk with him, He's going to get you through that trial. Verse 21, you shall not be terrified of them, speaking of uh, their enemies, for the Lord your God, the great and awesome God, is among you. One of the most comforting verses in 
the whole Bible, and it's mentioned many times, that just God is with you. God's with you. And he's a great and awesome God. This is the, this is the incredible, awesome power, really, of the story of the nation of Israel, that when they got out into the wilderness and built that tabernacle, God came right among them. He was with them. Of course, as New Testament believers, 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we are the temples of the Holy Spirit. We now have inside of us what the Israelites did, only had in that one place in the Holy of Holies where only one person was allowed in there. And, that, and, and then once a year, the high priest, after many baptisms and and uh, and sacrifices. He is not only among you, he's, he's in you. Don't be terrified of them. And I can tell you, I speak this to my own heart, I'm not above being terrified. Verse 22, And the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you little by little. You will be unable to destroy them at once, lest the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. Wow. That's an interesting verse. Let me repeat it. The Lord your God will drive out those nations before you little by little. You will be unable to destroy them at once, lest the beasts of the field became too numerous for you. So the apparently what's going on here is the enemies, that is the verse 1 of this chapter, the Hittites, the Gershites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, they occupied such a large geographical portion of the nation of Israel that if they were to be wiped out completely, uh, the, the, the wild beasts would actually become a threat to them because these vast empty spaces uh, would allow them to uh, reproduce at high rates uh, and so um, what, he's, what he's saying is that I'm not going to let that happen to you. It's going to be little by little, so that won't happen. So, you know, you won't have this situation with a wild beast. And, and, and so, uh, you know, all of this, of course, and, and a spiritual application to the Christian, as we've mentioned previously, the promised land, uh, is 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 not a picture in the Christian life of, of heaven, that is, because you know, the Israelites are going in and they're having to battle. In heaven, there will be no battles. But in Ephesians 6 and other places, we recognize this is a big old battle that we are after we're in Christ and we're in the body of Christ. Oh man, is this a battle. It's a spiritual battle. And we need to understand, and new Christians need to understand, that not every one of their enemies is going to be conquered overnight. What do I mean by that? Just the, 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 the sins in their life. I mean, the, the one thing that we are assured of in the promised land, Romans chapter 6, is that we'll have victory and freedom um, over the bondage of sin. It's a promise every born-again believer, we are told in Romans 6 and many other places. But, uh, but we shouldn't think that a new Christian should, is going to overcome all at once 
every single one of those enemies, those sins. Uh, you know, you just you, you go down the list: curse words, stealing, smoking, uh, pornography, uh, uh, anger, pride, selfishness, jealousy, so, lying. So you know, so often what does happen is that certain things will go overnight. I know in, in my life, many people today, I think they look at me like I had three heads when I tell them I, I, I'm ashamed to say it. I'm ashamed to admit this, but I, I, I cursed up a storm in virtually every conversation that I had before I was saved, but overnight that uh, vanished. And I, you know, wasn't above me to, to steal something overnight that vanished uh, overnight uh, something like lying as well uh, that type of thing uh, went away in you know in a short amount of time however you know things like pride and, and, and selfishness uh, and jealousy I tell you and, and and probably the worst one, anger. These things take take years. And uh, I'm not telling this. I'm not saying this to give anybody who's listening a license to sin. Well, the Bible, as Pastor Steve said, that you know uh, we're you know I'm, I'm not going to be able to drive out all these en enemies all at once. But little by little, I'm not, look. I'm not. I, I'm not giving you a license to sin. But I am telling you just by way of encouragement that if you are dogged by a particular thing, maybe it's an anger thing or maybe it's smoking or uh, this type of thing, God's promised you victory over it. But at the same time, it does take some time for certain things uh, to be rid of our life. But this I will say for sure, uh, there does reach a point where every single sin in your life um, that the Lord says okay that's it time your time's up this is you get you got this has got to leave permanently and so uh, not a license for sin but it's true that we there is a process of sanctification where we uh, not all the victories um, happen overnight uh, they happen over time. Verse 23, but the Lord your God will deliver you them over to you and will inflict defeat upon them until they are destroyed. And he will deliver you, rather he, and he will deliver their kings into your hand and you will destroy their name from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. You shall burn the carved images of their gods with fire. You shall not covet the silver or gold that is on them nor take it for yourselves, lest you, lest you be ensnared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. Nor shall you bring an abomination into your house, lest you be doomed to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest it and utterly abhor it, for it is an accursed thing. Verse 26. So you shouldn't you you shall not bring an abomination into your your house. You know I, I I think of this verse. I tell you, what I think of more than anything else is the uh, just for parents that you should not be letting your 
children bring an abomination into the house. I don't know how many times over the years with our kids I've had to remind them this is God's house. Why don't you want to? Why don't you want us bringing this entertainment in? This is God's house. Why? Why? Why can't we watch this movie in this house? This is God's house. Why can't we, you know, listen to uh, this song everyone is listening to at school? This is God's house. Why can't, you know, uh, Uncle Freddie and his girlfriend sleep overnight uh, in, you know, in the, in the same bed in our house? This is God's house. And so... Don't bring an abomination into your house. You are the steward of the house. It's God's house. It's not your house. And so whether it's music or posters or TV or whatever it is, uh, don't bring an abomination into your house. Uh, and so chapter 8 of Deuteronomy. One of the, this is one of these chapters that is, is well known and for good reason. It is a, a wonderful chapter. Some of you may be thinking at this point that the lesson's already been 52 minutes. How long this is how long is this gonna go? Well, probably at least another 20 minutes. So uh, pop some popcorn and and uh, on the pause button and pop some popcorn or whatever it is you eat. Let's continue with this wonderful chapter. Chapter 8, Deuteronomy, chapter 8. Two key words of this chapter, remember and forget. Or remember and don't forget. And uh, no, I'll go back to the first one. Remember and forget. So the, 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 remember is, is what you, the faithfulness of God is, is what you want to do. But if you forget, you will be judged. First one says, every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember, there it is, that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you and to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his covenant or not. So there's some really good stuff right, right there. Uh, it, 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 it. It says that um, the Lord God brought them um, through the wilderness for 40 years to, to humble them. Now, we're going to see really soon, actually we've already seen in verses 13 of chapter 7, but we'll see this once again uh, in verses in this chapter that the Israelites are going to go in and they're going to be blessed beyond their wildest imagination. Uh, again, verse 12 of this chapter is talking about they're going to be beautiful in beautiful houses. Their, their, their flocks are going to multiply. Their silver and gold is going to multiply. And uh, these kind of dis descriptions will go on and on and on. Um, verse 8 says, They'll be in a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig 
fig trees, pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey. They're, they're going to be wildly prosperous, something that they had never known. They were slaves, and then they were in the wilderness. And, and he says that he's going to lead them through the wilderness to humble them. That's what he says first. Without humility, there is no way a man or woman can survive prosperity. Impossible. Uh, prosperity will destroy them. Uh, it's probably an overworn example and illustration, but um, you just do all the uh, you just do all the research of people of what, uh, who have won the lottery and how they were just crushed by that prosperity. But a humble person uh, is going to be able to enjoy the prosperity without letting it ruin him. What is humility? I presented that um, at a workshop I gave to a uh, there was a, a missions group had a board of directors and I was there giving them a workshop and you know, the whole workshop was on uh, in missions what you need is humility and we started off by asking what is humility and I, I venture to say that humility is this humility is Understanding how God looks at you, how God looks at everyone else, and acting accordingly. That's humility. I'm sorry if that's overly complicated, but um, again, if you're taking notes, humility is understanding how God views you, understanding how he views everybody else, and then walking accordingly. And so how does he view us? He, he loves us, but um, we're saved by grace. And Jeremiah 79 says that our hearts are desperately wicked beyond cure. There's, there's nothing, nothing, nothing about us that we deserve what we've, what we've gotten. And so that's how he views us. How does he view everyone else? Well, he views everyone else that we're no better than them. God so loved the world. He loves them, and we are no better than them. And we shouldn't act like we do, including if God decides to dump into our lap uh, a fortune, an enormous amount of prosperity that he did with, um, with Israel, we'll still be looking at everyone else the same. That uh, they are men and women who are created in the image of God. They're image bearers. And it is, speaking of an abomination, it's an abomination to be thinking that we're any better than, uh, than them. And it says that God prepared them for going into the promised land. Or land. He wanted them to go in in one year, but he used the 39 years. It says God works all things together for good. So he, he used that 40 years to humble them, to prepare them for that prosperity. And many of you are listening, you may be going through that humbling process. Thank God for it, lest the prosperity that may come to you in the future does not destroy you. The second part, it's kind of related, but he, he said, it says he, he, he led them around in the wilderness for 40 years to test them and to know 
what was in their heart. Of course, he knew it was there, but they needed to know what was there, you know, in their heart. And what they found during those 40 years is that they had a lot of ugliness in their heart. I mean, man, when things went bad, they wanted to kill Moses and elect a leader and, and, and go back to uh, go back to Egypt. And they were complainers and they mutiny, the whole thing. Uh, and so he wanted to let them know what was in their heart. And notice how this one's related to the humility part. Humility, we get to know who we actually are. And when God exposes to us what's in our heart, that will bring about humility. It says, I did this for 40 years to humble you and to test you to know what was in your heart. You know, some people say things like, you know, a, a husband says he has a, a wife who nags all the time and will say, you know, this woman has made me into an angry man. No, the woman did not make you into an angry man, the, the, but the woman did exposed, exposed the, the real man that you are. All she did was unearth, because of her behavior, the anger that was already inside of you. Again, Jeremiah 79, the heart is desperately wicked beyond cure. In the seedbed of our heart, Jesus says there's adultery, there's fornication, there's evil thoughts, there's all kinds of, uh, of ugliness. And, and when God humbles us, when he leads us into the wilderness, as he did to the Israelites, oh my, all kinds of ugly stuff is going to come up. And, that's, and, and the proper response is just to run to the grace of God to run to the grace of God and recognize, wow, uh, I'm not who I thought I was. I really need God and I need to fear God and I need to keep, I love God and I need to keep my eyes on him. Verse three says, so he humbled you. He allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor your father did your fathers know, so that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And so you may recognize this from Matthew chapter 4. After 40 days, after Jesus was baptized, the Spirit came upon him. It says it drove him, and the Spirit drove him. In the book of Mark, it says he drove him to the wilderness. He was Fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, Satan shows up and says, why don't you turn those stones into bread? This is, then he quotes here, Deuteronomy 18.3. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And uh, what's so interesting to me, it says he allowed you to hunger in order that you would learn you don't live by bread alone, but you live, by, uh, you live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Sometimes it's taking away the bread. It's making us hungry for what, and it may not be talking, you know, may not be talking about obviously about food, but whatever, financial lack or in, you know, in some kind of trial, you're, uh, you, you are without. And... You lack, you 
lack whatever. Maybe you lack a job, you got fired, or you lack a, a spouse, you're single, or whatever. He'll, he'll cause you to hum, hunger so that you will come to know that you don't live on bread alone, but you live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Why is that? Because when we hunger, when we're, you know, when that, when we're when we're lacking, we're lacking that spouse. We're lacking that uh, friendships in the world. We're lacking whatever. We turn to God, and then He supplies what He supplies in us Himself. Just that relationship, that joy being in Him, that satisfaction being in Him, and we learn. Wow, I don't live. On bread alone, I I I don't live uh, based upon having a spouse or based upon having enough money or based upon having the right job or any job at all. Life is really about the Lord, and it's interesting. It says that'll humble us and allow us to hunger, so that we'll learn those things. And you know, we have stubborn, rebellious hearts. We we don't we we don't have this stuff figured out. We and we, we think we can do it on our own. We think we don't need the Lord. Well, he has his ways of showing us. And he's reminding them. He starts to remind them in verse 4 of his faithfulness. Your garments did not wear out on you during this 40-year period, nor did your foot swell over these years. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son... So the Lord your God chastens you. Hebrews 12, 5 through 11 says it's the illegitimate sons are the ones that never get chastened. It's the illegitimate sons that never get chastened. If you're chastened, if you're in this time of tribulation and trial and you've, you're a born-again Christian, you should know that that's what God does. He disciplines his sons. And not necessarily because of any wrongdoing. Uh, specific trespass or wrongdoing that you've done. It's just to, it's just like, I always think of football practice in Florida in the late 70s when I did football practice in the middle of the summer. Whatever, you know, the 100% humidity and the 80 degree, of course that's rain, but the 80 degree weather and just the, the mud and leaving practice with mud all over me and the discipline and the training that I was getting, and uh, it was making me into a man. Well, God will, will discipline us and chasten us in the same way. Why? Because we're his sons, we're his daughters. You, and it says, you should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, verse 5, so the Lord your God chastens you. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord, your God, to walk in his ways and to fear him, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of, of, of water, of fountains and springs that uh, flow out of valleys and hills, uh, a land of, of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. So just tremendous prosperity. But he humbled them in order to prepare them for that. Verse 10, when you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has 
given you. So bless the Lord. Thank the Lord in the seasons of prosperity in your life. Thank him, bless him. Verse 11, beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led you through the great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery uh, serpents and scorpions and thir a thirsty land where there was no water, who brought water for, your, for you out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do you good in the end. Whatever you do, verse 17, don't then say in your heart, it was my power and the might of my hand that have gained me this wealth. No, verse 18 says, you shall remember the Lord your God. It is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, as it is to this day. And then it shall be, if you by any means forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. As the nations which the Lord destroys before you, so you shall perish, because you should, would not be obedient to the voice of the Lord your God. And so the danger here of of not being grateful. You know, James says in the book of James, very well-known verse in the book of James, confusing verse to many. Chapter one, verse nine, James says, let the uh, lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. And the reason for that is, is that the lowly brother doesn't, they don't have, speaking of the poor, they don't have these big houses that he's talking about here, these beautiful houses, these multiplied flocks, these silver and gold that is multiplied. And, and so they look only to God. That's a general statement, of course, not all the poor look to God. But the rich, it says, let the rich consider his humiliation. Uh, meaning that when you are rich, you're in a dangerous place because there's such a tendency to rely on our riches rather than the Lord. And there's such a tendency to have that, you know, even though superficially a rich person may say, oh, you know, I, this is all the Lord, yeah, 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 in his heart. He's thinking about the hard work He's thinking about the smarts. He's thinking about the all-nighters he, he or she took and did in college to get good grades, and and uh, and they're for, they, they forget in the deep downside they they're thinking it was from them. Uh, you know, sometimes the you know from time to time the Lord will will do something in your life which 
will make you really remember how dependent you are, completely dependent you are on him. I'll, I'll just share with you, I'll be vulnerable, why not, and share with you a uh, story that happened just a couple of days ago. Uh, but the beginning of the story is uh, 15 years ago, I, uh, after the church had started, right before the church started, I was developing severe neck pain. Looking back, it was just a spiritual attack, I believe, to prevent the, the church from, from starting or ever being able to thrive or, or flourish. And it got so bad that the doctor prescribed some narcotics. Eventually, I, uh, he just kept on increasing the narcotics. I was on fentanyl and methadone, all prescriptions. And meanwhile, as Calvary chapels typically are, I was working a full-time job. And I, I mean, I had five kids and a wife and, and, but he kept on increasing these prescriptions. I mean, it was crazy. And then, you know, after a while, because of the whole thing, uh, to make a very long story short, um, you know, one of the things, that, one of the things, the side effects and the dangers of of taking narcotics, um, even if it's with prescription, is that it just really starts messing with your mind and, and things like that. Uh, one day, uh, this whole thing uh, triggered a full-on panic attack. I'd never had one uh, before, and here I was. Uh, I don't know when it was. This is this is 15 years ago, and my heart. I think. Uh, it, it, it over doubled my heartbeat and I felt I was going to die. And uh, it was a complete full on panic attack uh, brought about by the use of these uh, narcotics. And I went into the hospital and calmed down and I, I did something stupid. I basically went cold turkey off the narcotics, uh, you know, and completely, completely left them. It was a very hard period just getting over all that. And my body went through withdrawals. I had to take short-term disability. I was out for six weeks out of the pulpit, out of my job and, and, and cleanse my, my body of all that. And God miraculously healed my neck as I stand here and uh, today as I'm uh, speaking here, rather, uh, there is no neck pain. <laughs> Praise the Lord. But I remember that panic attack. Well, panic attack. Well, it was a an all-consuming, overwhelming, and any of you who are listening knows what they're like. I mean, it's terrible. But interestingly enough, um, about four years after the fact, I was on an airplane to China. It was three in the morning, and it it, it, it almost felt like. I had the onset of another one. I fly a lot. I had nothing to do with flying, but it was maybe it was a 13-hour flight or something. And I, I felt the what felt to me like the onset of another one. But I stood up and I walked to the back, and I was fine. That was 11 years ago. Um, again, there was no panic attack at that time. But um, just this past week, I was uh, counseling someone at a at a local coffee shop, and. An incredibly bizarre thing happened. All of a sudden, I felt completely overwhelmed and felt like I was going to have a that same feeling, a full-on panic attack, where my, where, you know, psychologically, emotionally, physically, I was going to be transformed into this mess that I had been. Uh, what it was 16 years ago now, and. 
I, I really felt, so, uh, you know, I heard a distinct voice, not an, not an audible one saying, there's a look around, there's a demon. And I looked to my right and there was a man sitting in this coffee shop with looked to me like an ashen face who was in some bizarre kind of demonic trance. And I immediately understood what was going on and, and then I was fine. And so there was no panic attack. At one point, the guy who was counseling said, hey, uh, everything okay? <laughs> I said, yeah, it's, it's, it's okay. But uh, what it made me think, what it made me realize, um, as soon as, uh, you know, as soon as I sort of uh, emotionally recovered, again, the panic attack never came on. It was just that feeling like it was going to, Come on, I hadn't had that feeling since that airplane going to China. But what it made me think was how unbelievably totally dependent I am on the grace of God and how completely vulnerable that I am as a human being. You know, we think we're invincible. We think we're invincible. We're not. <laughs> we're not. If God withdrew his grace from planet Earth for... 20 seconds, the world would implode. We go from grace to grace. Jesus takes us to, uh, Jesus takes us from, from grace to grace. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. John chapter one, verse 16, it says, of Jesus fullness, we have all received grace upon grace, meaning Kind of like strength to strength, but from grace to grace to grace to grace. And uh, anything that we have in our life, you know, the wit that we have, the intelligence, the way we can hold an argument, the way that we can, uh, we endure and we persevere in our jobs, in our marriages, everything, it can all be, it can all go in an instant if it wasn't for the grace of God. And I, I, I pray that somehow, maybe not in the same way that happened with me, that that the Lord would make you just keenly, acutely aware of how vulnerable, vulnerable you are and how much you rely on His grace. It says, whatever you do, verse 17, Deuteronomy chapter 8, don't say in your heart, after you experience the blessing, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth, you know, what we do, what mankind does is, you can just see this in the United States of America, is that, um, you know, because of men of God and women of God in the past and revivals and the just great uh, amount of the, the, the fear of God in this country, the body of Christ, many, many, many blessings have come upon this country. But what inevitably happens to man or what's happened to this country is that the blessings come and then man wants to enjoy the blessing without any accountability at all. I mean, how can I enjoy this? How can I enjoy this new house, these cars, these vacations, this, this large bank account if I have to answer to anyone, including a God? And, and so they, you know, they, they, they cast God out. Don't let that happen to you. And, uh, when I was sharing recently with the church about prayer, in addition to every day, just listing out different things that are 
that you've been worrying about or complaining about and, and, and then reflecting on, wow, how can I be worrying? God has always delivered. I strongly suggested to the church that they also just write out every day, they list out, uh, I say every day, my practice is Monday through Friday to do this, but, uh, but uh, to write out what it is that day that you're, you're thankful for, large and small. Uh, again, I mean, it, you like the pungency of the pepper you put on your eggs this morning. Well, God made that pepper. Thank him for it. <laughs> or, 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 or maybe there's just been great delivery of some sort in your, uh, you know, in your life and everything in between. List them out every day. Begin your prayer life, begin your devotion life by renewing your mind. You know how you renew your mind? By being thankful for it. By being thankful for what he's done in your life. And then this, um, and then this stark war warning um, at the end of Deuteronomy, verse 19 and 20, says, if you by any means forget the Lord your God and follow other gods, and serve them and worship them. I testify this day you'll surely perish. As the nations which the Lord destroys before you, so you shall perish, because you would not be obedient to the voice of the Lord your God. You know, instead of looking at that and, and, and shuddering, we should we should be so thankful for that warning and and the healthy fear that it brings upon our life. Yeah, that's that's we need that. We need that warning. No, Lord, we're not gonna forget you. We're going to remember you. We're going to obey you. We're going to allow all this thanks, this thanksgiving and the knowledge of the blessing that you've done to us to, to motivate um, us to, to live a life in which we are obeying you. We're obeying your word. We're loving like you've told us to, to love. We're serving. We're foot washing the way you've told us to foot wash. So there you have it. Next time we'll pick, up, pick it up in Deuteronomy chapter 9. God bless you.